Our Father and our God, we convene once again to open your holy word, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you will give us holy hands as we handle your holy word. I ask, Lord, that you will bless us in our study, that we might rightly divide the word of truth. Give us understanding, for as human beings, our understanding is so limited. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of requesting this favor of wisdom, and we know that you will answer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's turn in our material to the handout that says Stephen Bohr's notes on Daniel 2. And what I want to do is go to the second page where you find the subtitle, The Meaning of the Dream. Now, I don't think that I have to uh, explain the dream to you because uh, Daniel 2 is a dream that is constantly studied uh, every time we have an evangelistic crusade. But let me just review what we find in Daniel 2 so that uh, we have a reference point for what we're going to discuss this afternoon. First of all, in Daniel 2 we have a head of gold. What does the head of gold represent? It represents Babylon, very well. Then we have a breast and arms of silver. What do the breast and arms of silver represent? They represent Medo-Persia. Then we have the belly of bronze. That represents Greece. Then we have the legs of iron, and the legs of iron represent the Roman Empire. And then you come to the feet, and the feet have a mixture of iron and clay. And of course we know that the feet have ten toes, and the ten toes represent the ten divisions of what used to be the ancient Roman Empire. There's one point, however, that rarely is touched upon in Seventh-day Adventist meetings or in Seventh-day Adventist theology, and that is the meaning of the mixture of the iron and the clay. We know that the ten toes represent the ten divisions of Western Europe, of what used to be the Roman Empire, but we haven't dedicated much time to take a look at the feet and particularly the mixture of the iron and the clay. We simply say that the ten toes represent the ten divisions of Western Europe. So let's take a look at what is meant by the feet. And so now I'm at the subtitle that says the feet. And we're going to follow our material quite closely. The iron already existed in the legs, correct? So does Rome continue its existence in the feet? But is it a different kind of Rome? Yes, because it's not pure iron. It's not a pure civil power. It is a mixture of iron and clay. So Rome continues in the feet, but it's a different kind of Rome, a different type of Rome. Now, the second point is that the clay is added to the feet because the iron already existed before. Are you with me? The iron already existed before, so what is added to the iron in the feet is the clay, exactly. Point number three, the clay is a particular type of clay. It is potter's clay. It is potter's clay. Now let me ask you, does iron play a legitimate function? Is it a valuable metal? It most certainly is. Is clay also a very valuable, um, very valuable uh, something? Yes or no? Yeah. 
Yeah, potter's clay is useful to make what? Pottery. Yeah, it's very useful. So iron is useful and clay is also useful. Where does the problem come in? The problem comes in when you mix the two. Iron as iron is good and clay as clay is good. The problem is when you mix or amalgamate the iron and the clay. That's where you have a problem because both are weakened. The iron is weakened and the clay is weakened even more when you mix or blend the two. Now, is everything in Daniel chapter 2 symbolic? Let me ask you, is the gold symbolic? Yes. Is the silver symbolic? Yes. Is the bronze symbolic? Yes. Is the iron symbolic? Yes. Is the stone symbolic? Yes. Is the mountain symbolic? Yes. But the clay isn't symbolic, right? Would we expect the clay also to represent something? Would we expect the clay to be symbolic as well? Absolutely. So the question is, what does the clay represent in the feet? We know that Rome continues. We know that Rome is divided into ten. Those are the ten toes. But what does the clay specifically represent? Well, I want to read a statement that we find from the Spirit of Prophecy, which uh, we, we is actually on two pages farther along in your material, and then we'll come back to where we are now, where it says Ellen White. Do you see that there? A couple of pages farther ahead, Ellen White. You know, for, for quite a long time I kind of struggled with this statement, and not because I don't believe in the spirit of prophecy, but because I was wondering where Ellen White was coming from. I believe that what Ellen White says is found in Scripture. And it's always my practice to try and find in Scripture what is mentioned in the spirit of prophecy. And I found this interesting statement from Ellen White, and I asked myself, you know, where in the Bible do you find this concept? So let me read the statement from Ellen White, and then we'll go back to what the Bible has to say. This is found in volume 4 of the Bible Commentary, page 1168. Ellen White states, We have come to a time when God's sacred work is represented by the feet of the image in which the iron was mixed with the miry clay. God has a people, a chosen people, whose discernment must be sanctified, who must not become unholy by laying upon the foundation wood, hay, and stubble. Every soul who is loyal to the commandments of God will see that the distinguishing feature of our faith is the seventh-day Sabbath. If the government would honor the Sabbath as God has commanded, now when it says if the government would honor the Sabbath, it's not saying that the government should legislate the Sabbath, it's that the government should allow people to observe the Sabbath freely. It should guarantee people's right to worship. If the government would honor the Sabbath as God has commanded, it would stand in the strength of God and in defense of the faith once delivered to the saints. But statesmen, what are statesmen? Politicians, right? But statesmen will uphold this spurious Sabbath. That's where the problem comes in, when the civil power becomes involved. And will mingle their religious faith with the observance of this child of the papacy, placing it above the Sabbath which the Lord has sanctified and blessed setting it apart for man to keep holy as a sign between him and his people to a thousand generations. Now listen carefully. The mingling of churchcraft and statecraft is represented by the iron and the clay. Hmm. So what does the iron and clay represent? The union of 
church and state, that's right. She continues saying this union is weakening all the power of the churches. This investing the church with the power of the state will bring evil results. Men have almost passed the point of God's forbearance. They have invested their strength in politics and have united with the papacy. But the time will come when God will punish those who have made void his law and their evil work will recoil upon themselves. So according to Ellen White, what is represented by the clay? The clay is representing the church. Because we know that the iron represents the political Roman Empire. So the clay represents the church. Now they say, where in the world did Ellen White get this from? Is this some unique revelation that Ellen White has that is not found in scripture? Absolutely not. So it sent me on a journey. And where do you suppose I looked to try and discover the meaning of potter's clay? Ah, sola scriptura. I said, let's check and see if there are any other places in the Bible that use potter's clay symbolically. And I went to Jeremiah 18. Go with me to Jeremiah. I understand how, how to use sola scriptura? Now, we need to connect uh, apples with apples and not apples with oranges. We are connecting. The connection is potter's clay. We're trying to discover what is symbolized by the potter's clay. Jeremiah 18 verses 1 to 6. This is speaking about Israel, God's Old Testament church, God's Old Testament people. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to where? Go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of what? Oh, we have two of the key words. We have potters and we have what? Clay. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. Now let me give you a little historical background. Jeremiah is writing right before the Babylonian captivity. And he knows that Israel's going to go captive for 70 years. In fact, he prophesied that in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, that Israel would go into captivity. But he also stated that after the captivity, Israel would come back to their land. They would be reestablished. They would be rebuilt, so to speak. So basically, what he's saying is the vessel represents Israel. In a moment, we're going to read it. The vessel of potter's clay represents Israel. The shattering of the vessel represents the Babylonian captivity, and the restoring of the vessel, of making the vessel again, represents the reestablishment of Israel after the captivity. Now notice clearly verse 6 has this meaning. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So what does the potter's clay represent in Jeremiah 18? It is a symbol of Israel, God's Old Testament church, or God's Old Testament people. Are you seeing the point? Now let's pursue it from another angle. There's three angles that we need to pursue on this point. Go with me to Genesis 2 verse 7, and you'll say, what in the world could Genesis 2 verse 7 have to do with any of this? You're going to see in a moment. Genesis 2 verse 7, 
says, uh, it's speaking about the creation of man. And it says there, and the Lord God formed man of the what? Of the dust of the ground. How many of you have ever tried to form anything from dust? You can't form anything from dust. The dust falls apart. But really what God did was use wet dust, which we call potter's clay. You say, where is that in the Bible? Notice just below that, Isaiah 64 and verse 8. Isaiah 64 and verse 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. So God is the potter, and we, our body, is the what? Our body is the clay. So go back to Genesis 2 verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and then there was something missing. Were all of the body parts there? Were all of the organs there? All of the systems there? Yes, but there was something lacking. What was lacking so that the body could function, so everything could function harmoniously as one? They needed the breath of life. And so it says, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, or a living soul, some versions say. I'm reading the New King James, it says living being. So, so here you have God creating the body of man out of potter's clay, according to Isaiah 64. Then God gives the body the spirit, and now all of the parts of the body begin to function harmoniously. Now this is literal language, God literally created the body. But let me ask you, spiritually, what is the body of Christ? The body of Christ spiritually is the church, is it not? Notice Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, because we're dealing with symbols in Daniel 2. We're not dealing with literal, we're dealing with what does clay, what does potter's clay represent? And so it says in Colossians 1.18, and he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So Jesus is the head of the what? Of the body, and what is the body? The body is the church. Now question, did Jesus bring his church together as a body before the day of Pentecost? Yes he did. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, all of his followers were what? in one accord. The body that had different body parts all over the place because you know everybody wanted to be number one in the kingdom. There was no unity of the body. During those ten days the body comes into unity and now they're united but something is missing. What is missing? Oh you have to have the spirit in the body. And so we find in Acts chapter 2 and verses 2 through 4 and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Question, did all the body parts now begin to function in perfect harmony, each fulfilling their own particular function? Absolutely. By the way, this body illustration is not mine, it's the Apostle Paul's. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 12 and 13. The body is one, it has many members, and each member fulfills its function. And so it is with the, with the church. The church is one body, it has many members, 
and our purpose of all of the members is to function in perfect harmony. So in other words, as the body of man is made of potter's clay, literally, the church is composed of potter's clay spiritually because the church is the body of Christ. Now, notice 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. For as the body is one, and as many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. And so using Genesis 2 verse 7 we notice that the potter's clay, literally speaking, with which God forms the body of man, is symbolic of spiritual clay with which Jesus Christ forms his church. And in fact, in Romans chapter 11, the church is compared to fragile clay, interestingly enough. Now let's pursue it from a third perspective, Ezekiel 37, the famous valley of the dry bones. Have you ever heard of the valley of the dry bones? You know, you have all these body parts strewn all over the valley, they are totally lifeless, and then uh, Ezekiel is commanded to call what? He's commanded to call the spirit, but before he calls the spirit, what happens with all of the parts of the body? All of the parts of the body come together, and they all, you know, they, they all fit one with the other, and so the body is completely formed, but something is missing even after the body is formed. What is missing? What is missing is the spirit or the breath of life. And so Ezekiel calls for the Spirit, and the Spirit enters those bodies, and now you have an army. Now what is represented by the valley of the dry bones? Well, we don't have to guess. Ezekiel 37, 10, and 11 tells us what it represents. All the members of the body represent Israel, God's people. See, once again, the body is symbolic of Israel, of God's people. So it says there in Ezekiel 37, 10 and 11, So I prophesied, and he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, now comes the meaning, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. And so the mixture of iron and potter's clay represents the union of God's people, the union of the church with the state. Now let me ask you, is the church good as a church? Yes. Who created the church? Jesus did. Is the state good as the state? Yes. Romans 13 says that God established the state. It is God's minister. It even says in Romans chapter 13, Church and state are good. When does the problem appear? When you take what needs to be separate, Caesar to Caesar and God to God, when you take them and you what? And you mingle them, the result is apostasy. Now in Revelation 17, we have the same lesson but with different symbols. It's no longer iron and clay. A different symbolism is used, but it represents the same thing. Go with me to Revelation 17, and verses 1 and 2. It says there in Revelation 17 verses 1 and 2, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with, with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of what? 
of the great harlot who sits on many waters. What does a woman represent in prophecy? The church. What does a harlot represent in Bible prophecy? Represents an apostate church or an adulterous church. Now let me ask you, what is it that made this church adulterous? What made her adulterous? Well, let's continue reading. It says, with whom, what? The kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. What made her a harlot? Adulterous relationships with what? With the kings of the earth. Is that the same lesson as the mixture of iron and clay? It most certainly is. The mixture of iron and clay represents the union of church and state. And Revelation 17 explains that that means that the harlot, the apostate church, fornicates with the political powers or with the kings of the earth. So Revelation 17 is presenting the final stage of the union of church and state. See, uh, Daniel chapter 2 is presenting the events that take place during the Middle Ages primarily. Revelation 17 takes us to the time when the deadly wound is healed and once again the harlot joins with the kings of the earth to oppress God's people by joining church and state. And, uh, and so what is represented by the mixture of iron and clay? What is represented is the union of church and state. Just the way that Ellen White said that it represents. So do we have to depend slavishly on the spirit of prophecy? I'm not saying that in a negative sense. No. See, Ellen White herself says, when I say something, go to the Bible and check it out and try and find the meaning in the Bible. And the point is that we can find that meaning in Holy Scripture. Now you can read the rest of this material. Uh, I wanted to deal primarily with the issue of the feet of the image. Did you see how we use the sola scriptura principle? What did we do? We took verses that refer to the same thing, the same terminology, and we allowed those verses which the Holy Spirit put in Jeremiah, the Holy Spirit put in Ezekiel 37, the Holy Spirit put in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit placed all of those verses in different places strategically so that when we read iron and clay in Daniel chapter 2, we know what it means. Because if you just read Daniel 2, you don't know what it means. Right? But when you go to other passages from Scripture, those passages help us interpret the meaning of the mixture of iron and clay in Daniel chapter 2. That is the sola scriptura principle. Now let's go to the other material that you have, which is notes on Isaiah 24, 24 21 to 23. Once again, illustrating the sola scriptura principle. Now, I'm going to follow the material quite closely, and uh, you'll be able to follow along. It's only uh, four pages long. Uh, Isaiah 24 to 27 is what has been called the little apocalypse of the Old Testament, the little book of Revelation in the Old Testament, because there are so many elements in these chapters that are repeated in Revelation. Uh, now, chapter 24 is describing the second coming of Jesus. There's no doubt whatsoever about it when you read the description that is being given. In fact, let's read here Isaiah 24 and verses 1 through 4. Behold, the Lord makes the earth, what? Empty. 
and makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with the master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away, the world languishes and fades away, the haughty people of the earth languish. Clearly, if you continue reading the chapter, you'll find that this is a description of the cataclysmic second coming of Christ. I'd like to read a statement by uh, Frederick Moriarty uh, in the Jerome Bible Commentary, volume 1, page 277. He uh, gives his opinion about what is being spoken of in Isaiah chapter 24. He says this, God's word had once established order in the world, Genesis 1. The picture in Isaiah 24 is that of a return to primeval chaos. In other words, and he's a Roman Catholic scholar, interestingly enough, he's saying the picture here in Isaiah 24 is the return of the world to the condition it was in before Genesis 1, before creation, where the earth was without form and void. So Isaiah 24 is describing the second coming of Christ. Now let's read verses 18 to 20. Isaiah 24 verses 18 through 20. Uh, this sounds very familiar to, uh, to I, um, Revelation chapter 6 where it speaks about people hiding in the caves and crying for the mountains to fall on them, remember? Notice what it says here. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. In other words, there's no place to escape. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. Quite a description, isn't it? It's speaking about a global cataclysmic event, the destruction at the second coming of Christ. Now let's go to Isaiah 24 and verse 6. When this happens, and we discussed this a little bit earlier, so I'll just uh, review. It says, therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. So let me ask you, at the second coming, who are the few men who are left? Are there any wicked men going to live on this planet during the thousand years? No. So who are the few men that are left? The ones who are left are God's faithful people, the remnant, whom Jesus is going to take to heaven with him when he comes. I mentioned Genesis chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. That's where this terminology comes from. Let's read that verse. Verse 22, first of all, it says, So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. 
the English Standard Version, as well as many other modern versions, say only Noah was what? Was left, and those who were with him in the ark. Now it's interesting that it says few men are left, right? In Isaiah chapter uh, 24, would it be good to look in the concordance for the word few? I think it would be a good idea. It takes effort. But, uh, you know, if it's dealing with the same event, the word few might be significant. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, who does the word few refer to? To the saved or to the lost? It says there, speaking about the ark, in which a what? A few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So who are the few who are left? They're parallel to the few people who were in the ark, the eight persons. Are you following me or not? Now, we need to go to verses 21 to 23, because this is where we need to apply the sola scriptura principle more, more, in more detail. Uh, Isaiah 24, verse 21, says something very interesting. In this day, when the cataclysmic event comes, uh, which is the second coming of Christ, and everything is in upheaval, something is going to happen. Notice verse 21. It shall come to pass in that day, which day? Well, the day that's been described, right? Right? Second coming. In that day, the Lord will what? Punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. This is the Revised Standard Version. See, I like to read many different versions, then look at the original language to see which is the best translation. And let me interject something here. There are people who say, King James only, if it was good enough for Christ, it's good enough for me. Well, the King James didn't exist in the days of Christ, of course, you know that. Uh, I, I am more practical. I believe that the King James manuscript trail is the best manuscript trail. I believe that the Textus Receptus is a good manuscript trail. And I believe that the King James Version is a beautiful translation into Victorian English. It is very beautiful. But the King James Version has translation mistakes. Now listen to what I said. I said translation mistakes. I'm not saying that the manuscripts are bad. I'm saying that the King James translators sometimes translated uh, in a way that is not accurate with the meaning of the words in, the, in those manuscripts that they depend on. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, in Scripture, the word Sheol uh, means grave, and in the New Testament the equivalent word is Hades, which is used 11 times in the New Testament. The King James, almost in every single reference in the Old Testament that you have the word Sheol, it translates hell. And in the New Testament it translates the word Hades, hell also. Now for Adventists that creates all kinds of problems because, uh, for example, when it speaks about the burial of Jesus, uh, Jesus says, you will not leave my soul in hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Wow! So Jesus went to hell. You will, not, uh, you will not leave me in hell, is what Jesus said. So Jesus went to hell. That's what many Christians believe. But when you read, for example, the New International Version, which I don't think that the manuscripts that are used are the best manuscripts, but the translation is a good translation. Because the NIV says, you will not leave me in the grave nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will not leave me. The soul is me, in other words. 
and hell is not hell, it is the grave, according to the NIV. What is the best translation? The best translation is the NIV translation. So I want to make that clear. I'm not, I'm not uh, encouraging you to, to think that the NIV is, uh, you know, was revealed directly from heaven, that God sent it somehow from heaven, and that it's a flawless translation. But sometimes the translation is better in some of these modern versions. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, notice, notice then that when Jesus comes, there will be a punishment for the powers in the heavens and for the kings on the earth. So there's a contrast between heaven and earth. Now, who are these in the heavens that will be punished? Are they the good angels that are going to be punished? No. Who are these powers in the heavens? Well, let's read Ephesians 6 verse 12 to see who the powers in the heavens are. The Apostle Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What does that mean, flesh and blood? Human beings, right? We're not struggling against human beings. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, where? In the heavenly places. So who are the powers on high, the heavenly powers that are going to be punished when Jesus comes? They represent the hosts of wickedness, Satan and his angels. The note says, in scripture the heavenly hosts are angels. The expression flesh and blood refers to human beings. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that we are not warring against human beings. We are warring against heavenly powers. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the what? Of the air. So the host of heaven here refers to Satan and his angels. They will be punished when Jesus comes. So far so good? Will the kings of the earth also be punished when Jesus comes? Notice Revelation 19 verse 19. Revelation 19 verse 19. See, you have to look up all these kings of the earth. See, look up kings of the earth and see if it's in the same context in another place. When it says powers in the heavens, look up those key words in other verses to see if those other verses deal with the same theme. That's sola scriptura. It takes effort and it takes time, but it will be very rewarding. So Revelation 19 verse 19, which is also describing the second coming of Christ, and I saw the beast, who else? And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So are the kings of the earth going to be punished also at the second coming of Christ? Yes, the heavenly powers and the kings of the earth, according to Revelation 19 and verse 19. They're going to be punished when Jesus comes at his second coming. Is that their final punishment? No. In fact, notice what their punishment is when Jesus comes. That's in Isaiah 24, verse 22, the first part of the verse. They, here's the punishment. They will be gathered together as what? Prisoners. Oh, there's a key word. When Jesus comes, the host of the high ones, or the heavenly beings, and the kings of the earth will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. So what is the, this stage of punishment when Jesus comes? 
the kings of the earth and the heavenly powers are going to be punished and their punishment is that they're going to be thrown into prison. Now what does that mean, into prison? What is meant by the word pit that is used here? Genesis 37, 24, in fact it means two things. It, it, it can mean that you're put someplace to be retained while you're alive, or it can refer to the grave as a place where you're retained while you're dead. That's interesting. Let's notice, Genesis 37 verse 24, Genesis chapter 37 and verse 24. Speaking about Joseph, it says, Then they took him and cast him into a what? How do you suppose I looked? Uh, I found this verse? I looked up the word pit in the concordance. And the more you do it, the more you get used to it. It becomes, Bible study becomes exciting. Uh, because you see how the Holy Spirit put everything in there that we need to explain every single text. So it says, And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. Actually it was a cistern where they threw Joseph in. They did the same with Jeremiah. Notice Jeremiah 38 and verse 6. Jeremiah 38 and verse 6. It says, So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. You know that word dungeon is, is really the same word pit in Hebrew. So it says, they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon, that is the pit of Malchiah the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they led Jeremiah down with ropes, and in the dungeon there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sank in the mire. So what was this where he was placed? It was a cistern that was pretty much dry. Let's read the note. Both Joseph and Jeremiah were cast into cisterns in a living state, correct? They were both alive. The word pit in Genesis and dungeon in Jeremiah translates the identical Hebrew word. It is noteworthy that the pit was a place of temporary confinement until a final decision could be made on what to do with them. You read the story of Joseph and the story of Jeremiah, they were thrown in there, in there until they, it could be decided exactly what would be done permanently with them. Now, this word pit can also be used to refer to people who go down to the grave and are retained dead in the grave. Isaiah 38 and verse 18. It says, for Sheol, that means uh, the grave, for Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. Do you see the three synonymous words? Sheol death, and what? And pit. So can you be retained, or can you be in prison, in the prison of death? Yes, you can. So this word pit that is used in Isaiah 24 verse 22 is actually referring to a place of confinement, a temporary place of confinement, where you are either confined, uh, you know, for in a living state, or you're confined after death. The pit is not only a place of confinement for the living, the word is also used synonymously with death and with the grave. And we shall see in a moment that Satan and his angels will be confined in the abyss in a living state, and the kings of the earth will be confined while they are dead. Are you understanding me? Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Where will the devil 
be placed immediately after the second coming of Christ? Where will the devil and his angels be placed? Revelation only speaks, listen, Revelation only speaks about the devil. Say, so why does Revelation only say the devil and not his angels? Because the ultimate instigator and originator of sin is the devil, and that's the scapegoat ceremony. You see, the other angels are not scapegoats. And I don't like that word scapegoat because it gives you the impression that he's suffering for something you didn't do. We use the word scapegoat in that sense. But really, he's not a scapegoat in that sense. Uh, he's very guilty of originating sin and perpetuating sin. And so because Revelation 20, and when we study the sanctuary sequence, we're going to notice that, is the same thing as the Leviticus 16 Azazel ceremony, or the ceremony of the scapegoat, only Satan enters in perspective. But Isaiah gives us the broader picture. Let's notice verses 2 and 3. This is after the second coming of Christ. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit. You know, that's a Greek word, abusos. It's the identical word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah 24 and in Genesis chapter 1. Very interesting, which when, when the earth was without form and void. And so it says, he cast him into the bottomless pit, or the abusos, and shut him up. So is he going to be retained there? Oh yeah. And set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years were finished, but after these things he must be released for a little while. So is he cast into prison? Ah, the devil is cast into prison. He most certainly is. Now, what about the, what about the wicked dead? Are they going to remain dead during the thousand years? Of course. They're going to be retained by the grave. Notice uh, chapter 20 and verse 5 of Revelation. It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So are the dead also in prison? They're in the prison of the grave. Are Satan and his angels in prison? They're in prison also, in a living state. See, the word can be used in both senses, according to the verses that we noticed. Now let's go back to Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah 24, verse 22. And we'll finish reading the verse, because we only read the first part of the verse. It says in verse 22, speaking about the, the wicked, and Satan and his angels, they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. Now is that their final punishment? No. Notice the last part of the verse. And after many days they will be punished. Now wait a minute. How many stages of punishment are we talking about here? Were they punished when Jesus came? Did we read it? Yes or no? Are they punished when Jesus comes? Yes. But then it says, after many days, they will be what? Punished. So how many stages to their punishment? There's two stages to their punishment. And in between, there are many days. Now let me ask you, how many are those many days? A thousand years. Are you following me or not? A thousand years are the many days. And some people say, and we'll come to this when we discuss the year-day principle. That's one of the principles of, of prophetic studies. We need to understand that in apocalyptic prophecies, a day stands for a year. And so people say, well, if you, if you Adventists say that a day stands for a year, 
then you would have to say that the thousand years, if you apply the, the year-day principle, is hundreds of thousands of years. And my answer is, we don't have to apply the year-day principle to the thousand years, because Isaiah does. Because Isaiah says many days, whereas Revelation says a thousand years. Days are years. Are you with me? The Bible itself provides the year-day principle to this particular period of time. And you'll have a chart that shows all of the parallels between, between uh, Revelation 20 and Isaiah uh, chapter 24. It's an amazing parallel. But now let's finish uh, this parallel. So far so good? Okay, now, after uh, the devil and his angels are uh, imprisoned and destroyed and the wicked are destroyed, then something happens. It says... Uh, that God makes a new heavens and a new earth. Now, let me explain something here. When it says that God makes a new heavens and a new earth, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, uh, that is the conclusion to chapter 20. Because in chapter 20, you have the judgment, you know, the dead stand before God, then the dead resurrect, and they're shown the records. And then after that, Satan and his angels and the wicked are cast into the lake of fire, which is second death. And then verse 1 says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. So, so Revelation 21 verse 1 is really the conclusion of chapter 20. It takes you the full cycle till the moment when God makes the new heavens and the new earth after the wicked are destroyed. Now verse 2 begins a new sequence, and we're going to take a look at this when we deal with how to, how to take into account the structure of Revelation. It's tricky, but once you break the code, it's very simple to understand the book of Revelation. We haven't given enough importance to the study of the literary structure, the sequence of events, and how the book of Revelation is organized, how it is structured. It's vitally important to know how it's structured. Chapter 21 and verse 2 begins a new sequence. Verse 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now here's the big question. Does the coming down of the New Jerusalem happen before the destruction of the wicked or after the destruction of the wicked? We know it's before. But if you follow the sequence here, without taking into account the literary structure, you get the impression that the New Jerusalem descends after God makes the new heavens and the new earth. Are you following me or not? I hope lunch has, isn't... Uh, interfering with her thinking processes. But, but you, if, if you take verse 2 chronologically after verse 1, then you have to believe that the city descends after God makes the new heavens and the new earth. But, but we know that that's not the case because chapter 20 has said that the city descended and the wicked surrounded the city. So the city descends before God makes the new heavens and the new earth. So what happens? Verse 2 begins a new cycle. From the time that the city descends, and then verse 8 ends the cycle by speaking about the wicked being thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And so, and so it's vitally important, and we're going to dedicate a long time, probably one whole day, we're going to deal with the issues of how to study the literary structure of the book of Revelation, because it's critically important. So the New Jerusalem descends, and then I want you to notice something very interesting that happens here. We're at the bottom of the page, um, Actually, we're at the top of page, um, of the last page. See where it says the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed 
for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his elders gloriously. You know, he's going to rule over all the representatives of the worlds, the universe. Those are his elders, 24 elders. But you notice it says the moon is going to be disgraced and the sun is going to be ashamed when God reigns in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Now, here's the question. Is there going to be a sun and moon in the, in the new earth? Of course there is. Are we going to go worship from Sabbath to Sabbath? So how can you have the Sabbath without a weekly cycle? Are we going to eat from the tree of life every month? Yeah, it says the tree produces its fruit every month. If you have months, you must have weeks. If you have weeks, you have days, and you have years. See, the problem is people misunderstand what eternity is. Eternity is not timelessness. Eternity is endless time. For Plato and Socrates and the Greek philosophers who, were, who, who believed in the immortality of the soul, their ideal was for the soul to escape the body and go into a realm of timelessness. Because when there's no time, then you don't remember every, any of the events that, you, that took place while you were in time. So the idea is to escape from time. Because you escape all the memories that you had when you were in time. So the Greek view is that eternity is timelessness. The biblical view is that eternity is endless time. Nothing wrong with time. You say, but, but see, the Greek philosophers didn't have the Bible, so they, they saw matter. They said, time deteriorates matter, so we got to escape from time. Isn't that true that time uh, does a trick on you? Have you looked in the mirror recently? It does. It does, and so they said, the, the, the solution is to go to a realm where there is no time and no space. But they didn't realize that when God makes a new heavens and a new earth, he's going to give us immortal bodies. And then time will not deteriorate matter. So is there going to be a sun? Is there going to be a moon? Yes, but it says here that the moon will be disgraced and the sun will be ashamed when God rules on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23 to see what this means. See, people, we need to read carefully. People say, well, Revelation 21, 23 says there's not going to be any sun or moon there. That's not what it says. Let's read it carefully. It says, the city had no need. Where? had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, the Lamb is its light. In other words, the glory of the Lamb is going to be so bright that, that the sun and moon are going to be there, but it's as if they were not there. And let me give you an illustration. Supposing, you know, it's July in Fresno, 110 degrees, radiant sun, not a cloud in the sky, and here I'm downtown Fresno, and I have a flashlight on, and I'm walking down the street with my flashlight on. And people say, what's the matter with this guy? This guy's insane. Can you see the beam of the flashlight? No, because the sun is so much brighter. And yet the beam, the beam of, the, of the flashlight is shining. That's what's going to happen in the city. 
It doesn't say all over the earth. It says in the city there is no need of sun or moon. And that's what it means in Isaiah where it says that the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. Jesus is going to see, say, step aside sun and moon. Here is the glorious one. When will Satan and his angels finally be punished? Revelation 27 through 9 says that the city will be on the earth. The wicked will surround the city. Satan will be released from his prison. Will the wicked be released from their prison too? Satan and the wicked both released from their prison? Absolutely. What does it mean that they will be released from their prison? It has to do with whether they're dead or alive. When they're dead, they're in prison. And when they're alive, they're released from the prison. So it has to do, uh, we say, with a chain of circumstances. Yes, and the chain of circumstances is the fact that you're dead. The devil will be bound during the thousand years because he doesn't have anybody to tempt. He's lost all of his armies. Can you imagine what it's going to be like during the millennium for the devil just to sit here a thousand years after being so active in causing desolation and destruction? You know, his power resides in the fact that he's able to use people. If he has no people, he's got no power. And so he, God is going to say, devil, sit and look at what you have done. And he'll have a thousand years to look at what he has done. That will be worse torture than if he was dead. And then after the thousand years, the Bible tells us that uh, the devil and his angels and the wicked will be destroyed. And then God will make a new heavens and a new earth. At the bottom of the last page, this is the life ever after. Revelation 21 verse 1, which I mentioned was out of order, says, Now I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. What will God do when he eradicates sin from the universe? Revelation 21 verse 4, you know what, we've misapplied this verse sometimes. You know, people ask me, are there going to be tears during the millennium? I believe there will be tears during the millennium. As we open the records of our friends and our relatives who are not there, there will be tears. This verse does not apply to events during the millennium. It applies to the time when evil has been eradicated from the universe. Let's read it carefully. It says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more pain, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more death. Would that be true if the wicked are still being destroyed outside the city? Could it be said there will be no more death? No, because they're in the process of dying. Could it be said for the former things have passed away? No. And so this verse is speaking about when God's people are with him in the kingdom and then God wipes away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more tears. In fact, Isaiah 25 verse 8 contemplated this. This is a little apocalypse, the little book of Revelation. Beautiful verse. It says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Now you know where Revelation 21 verse 4 comes from. It comes from the little apocalypse in the book of Isaiah. And then it says, the rebuke of his people, he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. In other words, you can take it to the bank, because God said it. And when God says it, 
You can be sure that it's going to happen. And then you have verse 23. It says, Then the moon will be disgraced, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem, and before his what? Before his elders gloriously. Of course, his elders, if any of you have watched the six-part series that we produced um, here at Secrets Unsealed, the elders are God's representatives of all of the worlds that never sinned. And of course, who will be the representative of this world? Jesus, until, your answer was correct, Jesus, until the two atoms meet. And then, Ellen White tells us that when the two atoms meet, they will embrace, and Adam will fall at the feet of Jesus. He'll feel like he's nothing when he's seen the whole history of the human race, what sin has caused. And then Jesus will raise Adam up, and he will embrace him. And he will say to Adam, I am now restoring you to your first dominion. And then Adam will be restored once again to the position that he had originally, the position as the head and representative of planet Earth. And then God's people will live with the Lord forever and ever. In a world where there be no sin, no suffering, no sorrow, no death, where everything will be perfect as it was God's ideal at the very beginning of human history. I hope that we're all looking forward to that wonderful day when Jesus comes, and that will be a reality. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.